Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I woke up this morning reflecting on the fact that Stacy and I have been here for a year now. And it's been a really fast year. And I'm so pleased with what God has done in our first year. We've seen people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We saw 10 people trust Christ in, in vacation Bible school. We've baptized, I believe, 26 people this year. It's been a phenomenal year at North Roanoke Baptist Church. And we're just getting started. We're building upon the great foundation that we had over the last 29 years with Pastor Krim, and we're putting down some more foundation stones as we plow our way into the future for the glory of Christ. And we just heard, about, heard a song about Bethlehem sleeping, and in the United States of America sleeping, missing the Savior, missing their moment. And Matthew writes his gospel, Matthew chapter 1, he's writing his gospel to a people who have missed their moment. He's writing his gospel to a people who had every opportunity to recognize who Jesus was. He's writing primarily to people of a Jewish background. They should have seen more clearly than any of us who Jesus was, but they were asleep at the wheel. Would you read with me just Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? The record, literally the book, of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Would you pray with me? God, help us to understand the significance of the identity of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, impress upon us the reliability of our faith, a well-placed faith in a Savior who is King. In Jesus' name, amen. To begin his gospel, Matthew does not skip ahead to angels appearing to Mary and Joseph and the pronouncement of God with us as if Jesus came out of nowhere, as if Christmas was invented to throw a party in the middle of winter and to buy gifts, as if we could skip over the Old Testament and somehow understand how, who Jesus is. No. Matthew introduces Jesus in the same way that God had been introducing Jesus from the very beginning with a genealogy filled with Old Testament names. The biblical genealogies, by the way, aren't filler. Have you ever had a Bible reading plan and you got a few days behind and you come to a genealogy and you say, praise God, I'll just skip over that. And I, I've caught up. Unfortunately, that's, that's probably not the best policy. While I'm sympathetic to that, it's not the best policy because the genealogies are the summative substance of the story of the simultaneous rebellion of the sons of men and the redemption that God gives to those He is making, the sons of God. You see, every single word of Matthew 1.1 is loaded with significance, pointing us back to the stories in the Old Testament that promise and signal the arrival of the Savior. In Matthew's days, and later Hendrickson tells us, Christ's enemies were constantly making disparaging remarks about Jesus' origin. In essence, they were saying that because of his lowly birth, he could not be who he claimed to be. Was he not the carpenter's son? Didn't they know his father, his mother, his brothers and sisters? Wasn't he just an average Joe? Or at least the son of an average Joe. So Matthew begins his gospel and the New Testament with the Hebrew equivalent of a mic drop. 
Do you know what a mic drop is? It's when you have such a, a, a profound performance or you are in a debate and you make an argument that's so persuasive that you just drop the mic and walk off the stage. Matthew begins his gospel with a mic drop. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he is the son you should have been looking for. Everything that you said you've been looking for has arrived in Jesus Christ. So to enjoy Jesus, to receive his salvation, to enjoy the one whose very name means salvation, we must understand that Jesus perfectly fulfills God's plan to rescue his people from their sins and grant them life everlasting in his kingdom. This is what Matthew wants us to understand. To receive the person, Jesus Christ, who is salvation, we must see that Jesus is all that salvation requires. Our faith in Jesus, yes, it's faith, but it is not a blind faith. It is a faith that God has been laying down the planks for us to follow from the very beginning so that when the subject of our salvation arrived, we could know that He had come. It's often said that Men don't like to ask for directions. They don't want to admit they're lost. Can you believe that, Terry? <clears throat> I, I had the privilege of being at a Sunday school party with Terry Keffer recently, and this brother likes to win, and I can't imagine him ever asking for directions. And, and there is some truth to the fact that men don't like to ask for directions, but for me personally, it's not that I don't like to ask for directions. It's like, it's this. I don't like to ask for directions because you might get bad directions and the only thing worse than being lost is being lost with bad directions. When I was 16, I got in a car and I was driving around and my dad said, you just go over here and it was, it was a section of Roanoke that I wasn't familiar with and we didn't used to have these, right? Where you just put the address in and have GPS. So I pulled into a gas station, sweet lady said, oh, you're just going to go down here and you're going to turn right. And you're going to go three stoplights and you're going to make a left. Well, she meant to say you're going to go down here and make a left. Then you're going to go three stoplights. So I was lost and then I was more lost because I thought I had the good directions, but I had bad directions. And bad directions, once lost, is a really bad conundrum. <laughs> Here's what Matthew is saying. God didn't give bad directions. He gave really good directions. If you don't see who Jesus is, the problem is not with the direction giver, but the direction follower. God has been very clear. Jesus, according to Turner, is the one in whom all biblical messianic promises and patterns are fulfilled. The promises of God in the Old Testament are God's positioning system. You want to know where to find salvation? It's found when we are positioned in Christ. God has pointed us every step of the way to Christ's cradle, His cross, and in, in Matthew's gospel, His crown. Because He is Son of David. Over and over again in Matthew, Jesus is Son of David. Son of David. Son of David. The King. The saving King of a kingdom where everlasting life is found. And we should have expected this King. So we th see three ways in verse 1 that Jesus is everything we've been looking for. Jesus is God's promised Messiah. Jesus is David's promised son. And Jesus is Abraham's promised son. The word Messiah 
indicates the one to whom it refers. In other words, this Jesus was by the Holy Spirit anointed. In other words, he was ordained by God, set apart by God, and qualified by God to carry out the task of saving his people. What Matthew wants us to see in the word Messiah is that Jesus is the divinely anointed Savior. There were hundreds of boys running around Galilee named Jesus. But this Jesus doesn't just have the name that reminds us that Yahweh will one day save, for His very name means the Lord saves. You see, Jesus is the end of the reminders and the fulfillment of the promise. This Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh who has come to save. He is Yahweh's anointed salvation, the anointed king who rescues God's people. He's the one set apart. He's the one of whom the psalmist in chapter 2 verse 6 writes, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is God's anointed. The, the term Messiah, by the way, tells us that God has set the terms. There is one Savior. There is one Savior who's appointed for salvation. And we cannot ignore this one Savior because to ignore this one Savior is to ignore the way in which God has delivered His people. He has set apart Christ as the means of salvation. So to get to Christ or to salvation in some other way is impossible. In other words, the way of salvation is as narrow as Jesus, the Messiah. There is no other way. Why would the Reedies go to uproot their family and go to Japan with the message of the gospel? Because Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's appointed and anointed king and deliverer, and there is no other king. It's not just the United States of America or Bethlehem who is asleep at the wheel. The nations are asleep at the wheel, and the only way they will be woken up is if a man of God and a family of God takes the gospel of God to a people who have not yet heard that God has appointed one way of salvation, his Messiah King, and you must enter through the narrow gate through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. But he also tells us that Jesus is the promised son of David. After God rejects Saul, Israel's first king, as being king of Israel, the Lord comes to Samuel, the prophet, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, and he says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And as we know, the son that God chose wasn't the oldest and he wasn't the strongest. He was the youngest out there herding sheep where? In the fields near Bethlehem. He's like Jesus, the one we would also overlook. And God makes David this most unlikely son a promise, an everlasting and unchangeable promise. This promise is an unmovable landmark in God's positioning system, pointing the way toward Jesus. We find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, when the Lord says to David, When your days are complete, in other words, David, when you die and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant. That word is singular. The word literally means seed and is a reference to Jesus, the one son who would eventually come from David. I will raise up your descendant after you, 
who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. In other words, this kingdom is for the glory of God. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Not just a son of David, but a son of God the Father. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. In other words, Saul, I removed the kingship. It is no longer resting on the family of Saul. But listen to this. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David is promised in a fixed, unchangeable fashion. A promised, he is promised a forever king on a forever throne through a forever son who is also son of God, the father. The prophets continue to repeat this promise. Jeremiah says in chapter 33, verse 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In Ezekiel, even though the Israelites are in exile, the kingdom seems to be disbanded and abolished. Ezekiel says still that Israel's hope is found in David's son. He writes in 37.14, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. As Hendrickson writes, Matthew wants us to see Jesus he wants us to see that Jesus, according to his human nature, is indeed the legitimate seed of David in fulfillment of prophecy. David Platt says this, this promise to David is literally shaping eternity. You see, for Jesus to be God's salvation, he had to be David's son, reigning on God's forever throne in his forever kingdom. Everlasting life is only found in God's everlasting kingdom. We, if we have trusted in Christ, are citizens of that kingdom. The disciples of Christ are commissioned as ambassadors to extend the kingdom to the ends of the earth. This is why Paul tells us that faith is not just something that's in our minds. It's not just something that's in our hearts. It's something that consumes the totality of who we are. To be in a kingdom, think about what it means to be subjects of a king of a physical king. Jesus has a physical body. He's reigning and ruling, and he is not seen now, but we know by to the eyes of faith that he is ruling and reigning, and we are his subjects, offering not just our mental and emotional lives and our warm fuzzies and our church attendance. We are offering him everything that we have because he's made us citizens of his kingdom. Christ is salvation because he's promised son, and he's the king of the whole earth to whom we give everything, our marriages, have you given Christ your marriage? Our parenting. Have you given Christ the way you're raising your kids and your grandkids? Our work. Did you realize that your job belongs to Jesus? That God has positioned you there as a citizen in His kingdom for the glory of Christ among people who are lost all around you? Our opinions. Did you know your opinions should be formed and shaped by the kingship of Christ? Our kids, our homes, our hobbies, our calendars, yes, even our checkbooks, our everything. 
Do your lives reflect the kingship of Christ in every aspect? And I dare say that the process of sanctification is a daily asking of King Jesus, King Jesus, where am I not subjecting myself to your rule and your reign in the world and then help me to do it? Serving Jesus means daring to joyfully serve him as the son of David, the king who deserves that we give him every ounce of who we are. But Jesus is not just God's Messiah. He's not just son of David. He's also son of Abraham. And what this means to us, dear church, is that Jesus is not just the son who is king. He is also the son who populates his own kingdom. God makes some big promises to Father Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he promises to make him a great nation, give him a great name, bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He promises even a day when every family that remains on the earth will share in the blessings that come through Abraham. In Genesis 13, God gets a bit more specific. He says the earth will belong to Abraham and to his son or his seeds, singular, forever. In Genesis 15, he says that this son, even though Abraham has not yet been able to have children, that this son won't come through some distant relative to Abraham. It will come through Abraham himself, that Abraham will have a biological son. And these promises must proceed through Abraham's son, singular. Why do I keep saying that it's singular? Because often in our Bibles, the word seed is translated descendants, plural. But it is the word seed, singular. And Paul says this is a critically important statement. In fact, in Galatians 3.16, he writes, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Christ is the seed through whom the promises to Abraham and David are realized. This is why, incidentally, in the Old Testament, there's only one son of promise who gets us to the ultimate son of promise at any given point in all of the Old Testament narrative. It's why Isaac is called Abraham's only son in Genesis 22, even though he also had Ishmael. It is why Isaac could only bless Jacob and not Esau as well, because there's only one son of promise blessed by the Father through whom salvation comes. With every single son of promise in the genealogy that gets us closer to the son of promise, we learn more and more about the promised son that is first announced to us in Genesis 3.15. The one who is bruised, but in his bruising will crush the head of Satan and cancel the power of sin in our lives. When we get to Jesus, the promised son that the Old Testament has been signaling is here. If you'll indulge me for just a moment, I want to prove this to you. Jesus is like Abel who is unjustly killed by his brother for offering an, accept, an acceptable sacrifice to God. Jesus is like Enoch, who walked with God and was taken to heaven. 
He's like Noah who builds out of wood the only way out of God's judgment and into God's deliverance to new creation. He's like Shem who covers the nakedness and the shame of men and shelters us in his tents. He's like Isaac who was a miracle baby born to a mom who like Mary was shocked to find out that she would have a child who would later walk up Mount Moriah and willingly offer himself as a sacrifice with confidence that God if necessary, would raise him up from the dead, Hebrews 11 tells us. He's like Judah, who steps in to save his brother Joseph so that Israelites ultimately would be delivered out of bondage. Jesus is the promised son so clearly signaled by the Old Testament. When Jesus comes, we are delivered out of a bondage greater than that of Egypt. When Jesus comes, the son that all other sons have been pointing to has come. The Bible stops counting sons when Jesus comes because soon the sons and daughters of God number more than the stars in the sky as God promised Abraham, more than the dust of the earth as God promised Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, we learn Abraham believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it to him or accounted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, notice, he believed in the Lord. Not just, as some have argued, in the promises of the Lord. He believed in the person of the Lord, is what the text tells us. He believed in God's promised Son, the one who gives and fulfills and is the promise. This is why Jesus says in John 8, 56 through 58, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham, Jesus? Who do you think you are? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You see, Jesus doesn't just fulfill the promise. He's the one who comes to Abraham and gives the promise. He is the promise. He's the promise giver, the promise keeper, and the promise fulfiller. Salvation comes in the eternal Son who left heaven and left the glory of heaven and left the glory of the praise that he endures, enjoys for all eternity. He left all that and came to rescue sinners. Jesus is the Son of Abraham. And in Genesis 17... We learn that God's promise to Abraham is like God's promise to David. It's an everlasting promise. And we also see in Genesis 17 how the promise to Abraham and the promise to David connect. For Jesus, uh, for God tells Abraham in Genesis 17 that not only will many nations come from him, but even kings would come from him. Guess what kings come from Abraham? King Jesus, King David, and then King Jesus come from Abraham. As son of David, Jesus is the king of the everlasting kingdom. As son of Abraham, he is the son who fulfills the promise of an earth comprised of all nations who have found their blessing in Abraham. Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Do you want to belong to the everlasting peoples who are in the everlasting kingdom under the everlasting reign of a Christ who came and died and was risen to raise you up to live with him forever, there's a way to do it. And Matthew is shining a bright spotlight on how that happens in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. 
come under the loving and saving lordship of King Jesus. Believe as Abraham did in the son of Abraham. Do you want to share in the everlasting blessings of Abraham as a forever citizen of the new heavens and the new earth? Serve David's son, the Messiah King. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.9, anybody can be a descendant of Abraham. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to promise. You see, whether you're 9 or 99, this morning you can become a child of God. An heir of God's everlasting promises just like Abraham did. For God has shown us His Son in His Word and all that remains to be done is to believe in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David who is King, and the Son of Abraham who is bringing men and women and boys and girls to this very day into the kingdom. Would you pray with me? God, help us this morning to respond to the authority, the unique identity, the deity, the power, the love, who is Jesus Christ. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. How should we respond? How should we respond to who Christ is? I believe there's really four things that that we could do. As Martha begins to play, we're going to sing in just a moment. First, if you know this king, we should be thankful. The reality is, there's a world of people who had the entire Old Testament and they still missed who Jesus was. Because at the end of the day, we can't see who Jesus is unless the Spirit of God removes the veil over our hearts and opens our eyes that we can see Him. And we should be thankful. The second thing we must do this Christmas is refuse to separate Jesus from the promises that He fulfills. Don't separate the cradle from the cross. Don't separate the cradle from the fact that He is the King of glory laying in the cradle. Don't make Christmas about anything less than the miracle that Christ the King laid down His life to rescue the world. Thirdly, let's resolve to remember that Jesus is King. That there's no aspect of our lives that's out of bounds or off limits for the authority of Jesus. This King deserves total obedience from His grateful subjects. And finally, Maybe you've been a church attender your whole life. Maybe you grew up in church and you walked an aisle because a friend did. Maybe you got baptized because it's what your mom and dad wanted you to do, but you've never really actually surrendered your life to Jesus. Give up your excuses. Stop pretending that there are not consequences for refusing to trust in Jesus. God says it this way of His King's Son in Psalm 2.12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. See, 
Even a little bit of God's wrath is a terrifying thing. But if we kiss the Son, if we embrace Him with our lives, blessed are all who put their trust in this Son. We invite you to stand as we sing. Come do business with the Lord as you need.